Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Porter here on 970 WDAY. WDAY? I don't know what I'm doing. Natil, how the hell are you? Doing pretty good today. Not looking forward to the storms that are supposed to be coming in here this afternoon, but I'm hoping to be safe at home, have the dog walk and everything before that hits. Well, we talked about it yesterday. Spring in North Dakota is either nice weather or tornadoes. So yeah, well, we're, we're getting pretty, any of those. I think we're getting close to that tornado zone. We've got a moderate risk right now, which is, you know, not the worst possible risk, but it's not no risk. Yeah. Sometimes in North Dakota, like these weather warnings, it's like they're just constant, right? They're just, we're we always can't in a escape. State. It's like the terror warning, right? We're always at like a yellow, right? It's never green, right? Nobody wants to be at green. I, I don't know. But whenever I try to explain the weather in Fargo, North Dakota to someone I'm friends with that's from out of state, I always end up going to my, my go-to description is that Fargo is a testament to man's arrogance to nature. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because yeah. <laughs> I can't think of any other place where the temperature can hit 100 degrees plus in the summer and then 20 below without wind chill in the winter. Well, I, I, I read an article about um, it was a few years ago and, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not getting the numbers right. But it was it was like the, the top five hottest states and the top five coolest, coldest states in the nation, uh, you know, hottest in the summer, coldest in the winter. And North Dakota made top five on both lists. I am unsurprised. Yeah. You got to be tough to live here. Tough and good looking. I think that's. We're, we're some tough cookies. That's right. Uh, all right. Uh, we got uh, later on in the program, I'm going to be talking with Barry Simonson. He's a project manager for Enbridge's Line 3 project. It's a pipeline project over in Minnesota. Um, they've been holding public hearings, not surprisingly, because it's a pipeline, an oil pipeline. It uh, there's controversy and there's pushback and there's discussion going on. And so we're going to have him on and he can certainly answer your questions. Uh, and I'm going to, uh, I guess, play devil's advocate. I like pipelines, but uh, play devil's advocate a little bit. Ask him some tough questions. See what he uh, see what he has to say about the project. That's coming up. Your phone call, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. But before we get to that. Listen Listen to this. This is a report from ESPN earlier today. I don't know if you've heard about this, Natil. Uh, headline is, Senators aim to stop use of municipal funds to finance stadiums. From the article, a group of politicians who are tired of taxpayer money being used to build sports stadiums on Tuesday will introduce a bill in the Senate to prohibit the practice. Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, and James Langford, a Republican from Oklahoma, are sponsoring a bill that would prohibit teams from using municipal bonds whose interest is exempt from federal taxes to help finance stadium construction. Professional sports teams generate billions of dollars in revenue, Booker said in a statement. There's no reason why we should give these multi-million dollar businesses a federal tax break to build new stadiums. It's not fair to finance these expensive projects on the backs of taxpayers, especially when wealthy teams end up reaping most of the benefits. I, I agree with this. I think this is a great idea. I've been waiting for someone to go down. I, now, I'm not sure about the means. This seems a little bit like federal meddling. But absolutely, we need to open up this discussion because I don't like that these sports teams in hugely profitable leagues, whether it's like baseball or football or what have you, that these sports teams owned by billionaires employ millionaires. And who is it that's funding the stadiums? All the taxpayers. I don't think that's right. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. What do you think about that, Natil? Oh, I definitely agree with you. And, you know, 
in North Dakota, we don't necessarily have to worry so much about that because we haven't had that happen here as of yet, at least. Well, in, we don't have a sport. We don't have any teams. Well, exactly. So we haven't had that that worry yet. But just recently, Minnesota was dealing with paying for the new Vikings US, stadium. U.S. Bank Stadium. That's right. Target Field was also taxpayer financed. Uh, a lot of them were. Uh, the New York Yankees got $431 million in uh, taxpayer subsidies to build their stadium. That's my team. Uh, and as much as I love baseball and as much as I love my team, I don't think that's right. Uh, again, from ESPN, it says a report in September by the Brookings Institution revealed that $3.2 billion in federal taxpayer money through municipal bonds has been used to fund 36 newly built or renovated sports stadiums since 2000. Now, this, this brings me to a point, though, that, that I want to make because it's great that they're opening this discussion about professional sports stadiums and $3.2 billion is a lot of money, even spread out over 17 years, because we're talking about since 2000. Um, the problem is college sports, I think, need to be a part of this as well. Because $3.2 billion over 17 years is a lot of money, but I went to the USA Today's database of financial disclosures for – the 233 Division One teams for which that information is available, and those teams in one year, 2014-2015, which is the last year for which data is available, those teams collected $2.6 billion in subsidies. And I, I say teams, those programs, those sports programs, because obviously at any institution you're talking about multiple, uh, you know, multiple sports teams. So I don't know. I mean, if we're going to talk about professional sports – then we should also talk about college sports because there's a heck of a lot of subsidies going on there, and that is something North Dakota has. As a matter of fact, earlier this year, there were a number of stories, including some of mine, about subsidies at the University of North Dakota and NDSU. None of the sports teams there make money. They don't profit. It, the cost of attending college is more because of these teams. So I, I think it's great. Let's. I mean, but honestly, college sports makes the pros look like pikers when it comes to taking some of these subsidies. What do you think? Is this right or wrong? Should we crack down on these teams getting subsidies from the government? 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob reporting on 970 WDAY, 701-299-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We're talking about sports subsidies. Uh, two senators, uh, well, bipartisan group of senators, led by uh, Democratic Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey and Republican Senator James Langford from Oklahoma, want to pass legislation putting the kibosh on Municipal, basically taxpayer subsidies for professional sports stadiums. Now, the municipal bonds aren't the only way in which these these stadiums get subsidized, but I, I guess it's it's the way. I, there's an in because the municipal bond interest is exempt from federal taxes. So basically, by taking municipal bonds, they're getting a tax break. Uh, and so that's, I guess that's the federal government's in. And I'm a little, I'm a little uncomfortable, I guess, about the feds getting involved in that way. This does seem a little bit like federal meddling 
I think if there's a solution to this, it's really going to have to come from the local level. But I'm glad the issue is coming up, and I think it ought to be expanded to college sports, and I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, Jessica had a point over the break. Uh, she sends a message, says, Stadiums bring fans and their money. The city's gained by the tax base uh, spending. You know, Basically, the, the, you, you grow the tax base by the fans spending, not to mention it also brings jobs. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a really fair point, Natil, because – and, and here's, here's the problem I have with the argument, and it's a difficult argument to make because of the reality of, of this situation. Yes, the stadiums bring economic activity and all those football games and baseball games or whatever, soccer game, whatever you want to talk about, uh, you know, they bring fans, they bring commerce, they, and that generates jobs and prosperity for people. That is absolutely true. But would the NFL cease to exist if the taxpayers weren't funding the stadiums? Would Major League Baseball cease as a business venture if we weren't subsidizing the stadiums? Now, the answer to those questions are no, in which case it kind of makes the subsidies unnecessary, right? I mean, these are these sports teams are very profitable. These leagues are very profitable. They could finance their own, their own stadiums, and they would do so because it is a profitable venture. They really don't need it. Where, the, where they get their in, though, is where, for instance, the owner of the Vikings says, well, if you don't give us a good deal on taxpayer financing, taxpayer ba- backing, we're going to take our team to another city. And so I don't buy the argument, the economic, because that, that economic activity is going to happen anyway. Where there's an in is this sort of arms race among all the different com- communities where a sports team is going to move out of one city to another city if they don't get on the dole. And... That is where it becomes very politically difficult. But to me, in my mind, that's not a justification for it happening. These teams can afford the, the NFL, with all of their money, can afford to build their own stadiums. It's hugely profitable. Major League Baseball is hugely profitable. They could build their own stadiums. The taxpayers don't need to do this. That commerce is going to happen. Major League Baseball is going to continue putting on baseball games because baseball games make a lot of money. Football games make a lot of money. That economic activity is is not going to happen anyway. Now, the only question is where is it going to happen, and they use that as leverage to get their dole. And that, that to me, that's the big complication, right, Natil? Because nobody wants the Vikings to leave Minnesota. Vikings fans want them to stay there. And so then they support the subsidy, so they won't leave. That's tough, but that's the reality. I mean, that's that's the political predicament that these teams put the local cities in, and that's why they cave over and over again and hand out the money. And it's even, I mean, really, it's even worse in collegiate sports because there you have a whole different dynamic where you have a taxpayer-funded institution, you have alumni, alumni groups, you have the fans themselves, you have students, and, you know, you... You know, there's this argument that we got to have these programs to bring in recruitment or whatever, even though these programs don't pay for themselves, even though these programs add little or nothing to the academic missions of the schools, uh, even though these programs make it more expensive to attend these schools, we subsidize them anyway because people like sports. And again, the same arguments are deployed 
Bison football games bring a lot of people to Fargo. UND hockey games bring a lot of people to Grand Forks. There's no denying that. Those people spend money. It's good for the economy. But is that justification for making college more expensive for students? Again, at the 235 Division I schools for which data is publicly available in 2014-2015, they spent $2.6 billion. That's taxpayers and students. $2.6 billion subsidizing sports programs. In a nation where college student loan debt is a crisis. So I don't know. I, it's, it's never popular when I bring this up. People Again, people love sports. People love this. But I love sports. I love baseball. I love the New York Yankees. But I'm not happy about the fact that they got $440 million to build their stadium. It's not right. Not everything has to be this public-private partnership all the time. I mean, sometimes you start a business and you think it's going to be a profitable business. You take that risk. You invest that money. You make it happen. I, I, I just, I, I don't see it. And, and the fact that there are bipartisan members of the United States Senate at a time where, where bipartisan cooperation is pretty scarce on the ground over in Washington, D.C. right now. So the fact that Republicans and Democrats are coming together on this tells me there is a growing appetite to end this sort of thing. Now, I'm not sure the federal bill is the right way to go about doing it. But if there's a growing appetite to cut off the gravy train for professional sports, and if we could use that momentum to build into cutting off the gravy train for big-time college athletics, which I'm sorry is basically semi-professional sports being subsidized on the back of taxpayers and students, if we could get there to where we roll some of this back, I think we'd be better for it. And it doesn't mean you don't like sports. It doesn't mean you don't like the Vikings or the Bison or the Twins or the the uh, Fighting Hawks at the university. I almost called them the Fighting Soon at Teal. Jeez, that would have been hostile and abusive. Okay. The fighting, yeah, the, the Fighting Hawks at the University of North Dakota. It doesn't mean you, you don't like these teams. It just means you prioritize other things better. And, and believe me, in American culture today, there are a lot of things we should be prioritizing over sports that we don't. And that's unfortunate. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with Barry Simmons from Enbridge. He's a project manager for the Line 3 Pipeline, which is causing some controversy, causing some consternation. We'll uh, have him on to uh, shine a little bit of a light on that. Your phone call, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. I made it down the coast in 17 hours. Picking me up a cat dog. Welcome back. Rob reporting on 970 WDAY. 701-293-9000. 888-970-9329. That's a toll-free number. Email talk at WDAY.com. Send me tweets too at Rob Port. So over in Minnesota, they're having a debate about the Line Three replacement pipeline. This is a. It would mostly run along the route of an existing pipeline, replacing that pipeline, obviously, given the name. Uh, it would transport uh, diluted bitumen known as tar sands oil. 
It would traverse, tra- excuse me, traverse 1,031 miles from uh, Alberta to Wisconsin. Uh, although most of the route follows the current path, uh, there is an area where and bridge the builder of the pipeline wants to uh, forge a new path. Uh, it would be uh, from Clearbrook Brook, uh, east across Hubbard, Wadena, Cass, Crow, Wing, Aitken, Carleton, and Douglas counties in Minnesota. And uh, they're starting the process, uh, bringing uh, public meetings about the project. And, of course, there is some criticism. So to address some of that, I have Barry Simmons. Excuse me, Barry Simonson. Boy, can't read my own handwriting. He is the project manager for Enbridge. Barry, thanks for the time. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. So uh, tell us, why is this project important? Well, Line 3 is uh, an existing pipeline that we've had, Enbridge has had in service since the 1960s, and over the course of its lifespan, it has encountered the most significant amount of um, uh, maintenance work done on it based on um, coatings that were used at that point in time that now are, are somewhat deteriorating to the point where we have to go in and do preventative maintenance. And it's gotten to the point where um, the company has, and we've also had to reduce the operating pressure and flow, which um, then limits the flexibility of our system. So, uh, in essence, what the company and its shippers have decided is to replace Line 3 in its entirety. Uh, it's a private investment, around $7.5 billion, and it's, it's really um, it's the right thing for us to do, and um, just not just for um, safe, reliable transportation, but for the, the general public, landowners, and the environment. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. So for the most part, the pipeline is going to follow an existing route, right? That, that That's correct, Rob. The um, a, lot, a lot of times we've heard this is a new route. Well, it's, a, it's actually it's not a, a new route. It is from Clearbrook. So from the border to Clearbrook, we're following our existing uh, Enbridge pipeline corridor from Clearbrook going south through Hubbard County, which you mentioned earlier, we're following existing pipelines that actually uh, take crude oil from Enbridge and bring them, bring that, that crude to the Twin Cities for refining. Um, and then when, when the pipeline is planned to head east, we're following existing transmission corridor. So we're really going forward with following um, what what we're, we're, we're intended to do through the PUC and Department of Commerce, which is the goal to follow as much um, existing infrastructure as we can, and that's what we're doing with our preferred route. I, I, want, I want to make sure that I understand that. Are, are you saying that, that all of the pipeline, because I, I know some of it, you know, this article is saying at least some, and I'm reading this article from the Grand Forks Herald, it says at least some of it is, is breaking new ground. Are you saying that all of it, though, is in existing energy corridors, like where we already have, like, say, power lines or other pipelines or what have you? Um, I would say there, there are areas where, if you looked at the map um, of the preferred route, <clears throat> there are areas where we have to deviate from the, the transmission corridor or even the, the pipeline corridor, and that's because we've done so much outreach. A, there's two reasons. One is um, landowner outreach. Um, second is environmental surveys. Um, and, and thirdly is, is trying to get back to our existing corridor once we get get around the Minnesota-Wisconsin, or I-35, I should say, over around Duluth. So um, it's really an iterative process when it comes to routing that um, even though it might look like um, we're not we're not co-located with existing utilities for a certain portion, we, we are, but we're trying to accommodate for um, environmental mitigation and landowner um, negotiations and, and 
to be amenable with that with the landowners. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. There was a public hearing recently, and one of the comments from that meeting that was in the Herald uh, was a, a gentleman saying that he feels it's technologically popu- uh, possible to do the entire route within the existing pipelines route. I mean, why? I, I know I know that you had alleged that. Uh, or not alleged, I guess you, you had said that, you know, obviously you're deviating a little bit from that path because of landowners or, or environmental concerns. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people are going to hear that and wonder, why not just follow the existing route? I mean, why not just do the whole thing in the existing route and be done with it? And that's, a, that's a very good question and a comment from many people. Um, and, and part of it is, if you dig into the details and understand the fact that we have six existing pipelines south of Clearbrook, um, and that really shows that the, just physically from diameters from 24 inch all the way up to 48 inch, um, that corridor has expanded over time. And so at this point in time, and not just Enbridge, but population areas like Grand Rapids, Bemidji, um, sensitive areas like um, Pike Bay Channel over around Cass Lake, it becomes quite congested. So in essence, what we're trying to do is balance all of the factors that play into routing for a pipeline, um, landowners, the environment, constructability and safety for, for the, the contractors that will be building this pipeline. So those factors come into play. Um, the other part is within the EIS itself, the Environmental Impact Statement, um, the Department of Commerce and the sister agencies will be studying um, if we if if we were to we as a company were to pull that old pull the line three out of the ground and put the new pipeline in its place that's one of the studies and we we're not for that and the reason for that is um, line three if you think about it from a from a historical perspective uh, think about it like this you have line one two three and then you have we'll call it four five six so line three is essentially right in the middle of that corridor and the the amount of uh, well the, the significance of from a safety perspective to pull a pipeline out of the ground in a, in a corridor where the, you have existing pipelines operating at high pressure and, and flow um, there, there becomes a great concern not just for just removal but to the existing um, integrity of those lines with heavy equipment uh, operating over them another question this is from Richard Smith he's the leader of of an advocacy group calling themselves friends of the headwaters. They say they're not anti-pipeline, but they're certainly critics. He said that, that they're questioning the veracity of an assessment uh, done with Enbridge's on Enbridge's track record concerning spills uh, contained within the draft EIS, the environmental impact statement. Um, do, uh, can, can you address that? I mean, obviously spills, whenever we're talking about pipelines, spills are a big concern. When we had the, the protests over the Dakota Access Pipeline here in North Dakota, that's what drove a lot of the the dissent, I guess, was people concerned that the, the pipeline's going to spill. Does Enbridge have a good track record on this stuff? Yes, we do. I, you can, uh, a lot of times, the uh, opponents and those that have opinions um, against pipelines, whether it's route or whether it's climate change or whether it's uh, oil, water, um, it, it, you know, it really... Um, we had an incident at the Kalamazoo, Michigan area back in 2010. That was uh, obviously one of the worst instances in our company's history. We have, after that, um, really stepped up our game when it comes to preventative maintenance. We've put between four to five billion dollars investments into our integrity management program. Um, 
from a preventative maintenance perspective, uh, where, where I'm in charge of line three, it's planning accordingly. We have intelligent valves um, along the, the planned preferred route that are strategically placed to um, safeguard against if there ever was an incident um, for, getting, for oil getting into waterways, um, and then for the general public. So we've done very detailed studies for not just the route, but for the engineering and the, the environmental surveys that go into the preventative maintenance as a whole. Um, we, we design our crossings uh, underneath the waterways very, very rigorously. And we also have to obtain permits from all of the agencies, like the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, Corps of Engineers, Public Utilities Commission, that really have to agree with Enbridge on how we're doing things and how we're operating it or how we're constructing our pipeline. So um, preventative maintenance is the most important part. And yes, we do have a good track record. And our, 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 our um, releases that we've had in the past, the predominantly what you hear is you'll hear numbers floating around 800, 900. And really, predominantly where those are at, they're at pump stations that have full containment, where our workers are doing maintenance on you know, pump stations that are terminals. So a lot of that is, is, is uh, um, overblown, if you will. But to us as a company, any release is not allowed. So our, our goal is zero as a company. Last question. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people, I obviously, you just got done talking about spills. And, you know, there's another quote here from someone else from the Friends of the Headwaters. He's saying uh, their definition, I guess, talking about Enbridge, of best interest of the public is jobs. They don't care that we sacrifice the environment. It's just jobs. But, but I think some context here that people are missing is there's an existing pipeline here. You said it was something like 60 years old. Um, it's requiring more and more maintenance these these days. If we don't build this new pipeline, that means we're going to continue relying on the old pipeline, which, I mean, however well you, you manufacture something, after a certain amount of time, it degrades. And, I mean, really, it, it seems like if we're in favor of pipeline safety and avoiding leaks, we want to build the new pipeline so we can replace the old pipeline, Right. Yeah, that's very correct. And just to, to give you give more context or provide more context on that, uh, we have a very we have a business unit that's pi- uh, basically is pipeline integrity, and that's what they do. And what they've estimated over the next 15 years, if line three is not replaced, is 7,000 plus, and that's today. 7,000 plus what we call integrity digs or construction digs, where we have high resolution tools that go through the line, and then we. Uh, choose areas that um, are potential issues, and they have to dig up an area. So along the Highway 2 corridor, um, that's just going to increase exponentially if Line 3 is not replaced um, within, uh, if, if Line 3 is not replaced, period. But we will well, continue, continue to safely operate Line 3. Well, it's it's going to continue to be a debate. Obviously, it's an important uh, issue for the region in, in Minnesota. It's uh, I consider it to be a very important part of our infrastructure. I'm pro-pipeline. I want to build them, but I want to do it safely and minimize the environmental impacts, which really I think is, is the universal goal of everybody involved in this. So, Barry, thank you so much for your time, and please keep us in the loop. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. More to come straight ahead. We'll wrap up the show right after this. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away.
Welcome back. Rob Report here on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Well, what do you think of that? I think there were some really good points there. Again, I'm not I'm not anti-pipeline in any way. Pipelines are the safest way that we currently have to transport oil. And yeah. the, the, the tar sands oils, just like the Bakken oil, isn't going away. And yeah. I'd much rather it be transported safely than transported unsafely via, you know, rail or the other ways that we currently have in existence. Unless somebody can come up with a better way to transport the oil, pipelines... Or come, are, up, with, or come up with something that replaces oil. But for right um, now, this is, this is the best we right. have, and I would much rather a new pipeline go in that is, you know, going to be safe for an extended period of time than have them continue to have to do repairs on a less than safe pipeline. Well, I, you know, I, I, that I think is the big takeaway from that interview we just did. And I, I think really it's it's got to be a part of the debate. A lot of these pipelines It came up during the Dakota Access Pipeline debate is if we don't build these new pipelines, we're going to be dependent on the oil of the old pipelines, because whether you like it or not, we're going to continue to drill for and pump oil. Because we're everybody's using oil, everybody's using oil. You will use oil today, and so as long as everybody's still using oil, we got to get it from somewhere. Because if we don't, then our quality of life is going to take a big, big hit. So if we're if we know we're going to use the oil, and we know we're going to then drill for the oil, then it stands to reason that we've got to have the safest possible way to transport the oil, and that's pipelines. And what's more. We've got to be able to build new pipelines to replace the old pipelines because technology is improving all the time. Old pipelines wear out. It's just something we got to do. Now, I'm all for a rigorous debate to make sure that the routes are the right routes and we're respecting the environment and we're respecting, you know, historically significant and culturally sensitive areas. I'm all for all of that. I'm all for having that debate. But what I am not for is allowing that debate to turn in to a sort of heckler's veto for building new infrastructure. We can't allow that. And and so and, and so far, I mean, it seems like the debate over line three has been pretty level-headed. Certainly we haven't seen it devolve into anything like what we saw with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully Enbridge and, and everybody, they find the right route, they build the pipeline, and we're all going to be better served by it. That would be the best possible outcome. Jay Thomas Show coming up next. Remember, you can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday right here on 970 WDAY or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at North Dakota's most popular political blog, sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again. For you.